The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I realized the other day that I just don't get it. I don't understand the internet. I really don't. Um, I'm within range of it all day with my phone or uh, my laptop, Um, but I don't get it. I don't understand what it is that most people seem to use it for, which seems to be as a primary tool for communication and information. And what I realized is that if I want to communicate with someone, I will send them one of the those old-fashioned things called emails, or I'll just talk to them, or I will call them. I don't know of a good way to do any of those things through Twitter or any other form of social media. The other thing, if you're just talking about information, um, I realize that I everything that I do online, from the moment that I realized that you could do anything, online in my, I guess, in my early 20s, late teens, um, all of it has just been an excuse to find something that eventually gets me back to a printed book. And so that nearly everything that happens online makes very little sense to me. And, and that is kind of the clue as to why I don't really succeed there. And I realized that If someone asked me, well, why do you write poetry? Why do you write stories? Why do you have a podcast? It's that old answer, isn't it? You make the podcast that you want to hear. You write the book that you want to read. You write the poems that you want to read. And I realized, why not uh, just fill then? Why not just fill this podcast with the things that I wish someone else had written? or in the case of what I'm writing right now, The Great Year, this long poem about a group of travelers who go from Eastern Europe to Iceland, um, why don't I just take everyone along on what it is like to write a thing like that and to read the poetry, read the myths, read the scholarship, you might say, that can all sort of feed into it. And I think that's one way of doing it. And what I'd like to do tonight is just read passages from three books that have meant a great deal to me as I've been going along lately. And you can just see what I mean from these three passages, where you get sort of a mini education just from two or three pages. Uh, It's not clickbait. It's not something that is meant to Uh, just have you turning page after page after page. Um, 
it's something that you can sort of sit back and gasp at. At least it did uh, that for me. And I wonder if it will do the same thing for you. So for instance, um, I have this great book called, uh, published by Tashin called The Book of Symbols, Reflections on Archetypal Images. And I've been doing my best to just read two of these a day. It's about 800 pages. And it just has one or two page entries on things like trees, ocean, sea, uh, skull, mouth, beard, teeth, fingers, uh, whatever you can think of. Anything that informs human, animal, or earthly life probably has an entry here. And what I want to read to you is just the, uh, the two pages they have here on weaving and spinning. And tell me if this doesn't just uh, knock you on your ass and want you to uh, stay on this subject for the rest of your life. This is incredible. It says, um, and it's it's referencing uh, in the beginning here, a, um, a circa 600 to 800 CE terracotta figure from Mexico, where it shows a, uh, a weaver uh, sitting, looks like cross-legged, and at the tip of the board where this work is being done, there is uh, a bird perched there. And this is what it says. A bird, the weaver of nests, is perched in a tree opposite a serene Mayan weaver, perhaps the moon goddess Ixchel herself. A simple backstrap loom made of two branches joins tree and woman as she uses her body to hold the proper tension. In many cultures, the upper crossbeam of the loom is called the beam of heaven, while the bottom, representing the earth, as if in between the world, is being woven into creation, quite literally being woven into creation, between the earth and the beam of heaven. In early myth, the goddess Ixchel was a spider drawing the thread from her own body, and it was from her that humans learned the craft of weaving from spider. Each morning her webs appear on earth, as magical as the drops of dew that cover them. And when the Zuni see a beautiful piece of weaving, they say, did you touch the spider's web? In all myth, the art of weaving originated in the divine world and this is why some small mistake must be woven into the pattern to remind us of the imperfection in all created life, and I guess in all human endeavor as well. Uh, we cannot weave things as well as God or as the gods. Uh, Arachne, an unfortunate young weaver in the Greek myths, uh, learned this the hard way as she eventually was turned into a spider as punishment after winning a contest over Athena, the Greek goddess who taught humans weaving and all crafts in the first place. Arachnids, the family of spiders, still bears her name, so the lesson there, don't get into a contest with the gods, and uh, don't beat them either if you happen to get into contest with the gods. Uh, by drawing out the tangled fibers of plants or animals and twisting them, a continuous thread emerges. The crossing of two sets of interlacing threads, 
called warp and weft, woof or filling, is the underlying principle of all weaving. From these simple techniques, fabric is produced of such complexity that weaving became an image for the mystery of existence itself. How do you like that? Uh, from this simple technique, fabric is produced of such complexity that weaving became an image for the mystery of existence itself. It is the crossing of time and space where the visible and the invisible worlds are woven together, each created form becoming a thread in the great tapestry of life. It is the crossing of the sexual union where the, quote, tissues of the child's body are woven in the womb of the mother. Weaving, then, means to create, to make something out of one's own substance. In a North African ritual, the weaver recites the same blessing when she cuts the threads of the finished cloth as the midwife utters when she cuts the umbilical cords of a newborn baby. And how do you like that? Uh, cloth resembles language in many ways. The words form syntax similar to how threads produce fabric. The words text and textile share a common root, which means to weave. In Dogon myth in Africa, weaving and speech are poetically combined to form a coherent cosmology. The mouth and the vocal cords of their ancestor figures, Nomo, were a loom from which not only words issued but also cloth. The Dogon people refer to the loom as, quote, secret speech, and they say, to be nude is to be without words. The designs woven into fabric are a form of storytelling where weaving, like song, imparts immortality. And the women in the Odyssey acquire their voice through weaving. Helen, who is called she of the golden spindle, weaves the scenes of the Trojan War, turning her tapestry into an epic poem. This while Odysseus's wife, Penelope, she defies her suitors in that great trick that she has uh, by weaving dissent as she unwinds at night what she had woven by day. She had promised, when I'm done uh, with my job of weaving here, I will choose a suitor to replace my husband. And that's what she does. She weaves during the day, unwinds it at night. Uh, when their households eventually return to order, these weavers become spinners producing the thread for other women to weave their own stories. And in that horrible story of Terius and Philomela, um, what is it? The, uh, uh, the husband uh, kidnaps his sister-in-law and uh, rapes her and keeps her uh, confined, and cuts out her tongue so that she cannot uh, tell what has been done to her. And so what does she do? How does she communicate what she's doing? Uh, she weaves it uh, into a tapestry to, uh, to tell the crime. Um, and here it says, in the Norse poem called the Voluspa, a poem we've spent a long time with on this podcast, uh, a seeress sings the story of the world. And poetry, like magic, is 
a form of weaving, spinning, lacing, binding, and fastening. These are the activities of the Norns, the Norse Norns, the spinners of destiny, seated at the roots of the world tree in the ancient Scandinavia. Their names, Erd, Verandi, and Skuld, are variations of the word for becoming. We have language, we have weaving, cloth, clothing, uh, poetry, and now we just have becoming itself, creation itself. Uh, the Greek spinners of fate were also singers, according to Plato. They were called clotho, which means spinner, who spins the threads of life, lachesis, which means allotment, who measures out life, and atropos, inevitable, who chooses when to cut it off. Destiny, of course, is called the thread of life. It is a certain period of time which can be long or short. Thread, like time, stretches. The original meaning of spinning to a certain length or span, which is the original meaning of stretching. Uh, everything ruled by time is subject to change and thus to fate. The moon measures time and fate as she changes from dark to full, corresponding to the cycles of women's menstruation, the word which originating like month and measure from the Greek for moon, and nature's rhythms resemble the pulse of shuttle and beam, and spinning and the spinning motion of the spindle. And it all begins with a single thread. As Plato tells us, wound on the spindle of the revolving cosmos, held in the lap of a woman, spinning the destiny of the world into being. And then there's this quote from Goethe's Faust. Um, in the ebb and flow, and the warp and weft, cradle and grave, an eternal sea, a changing patchwork, a glowing life. At the whirring loom of time, I weave the living clothes of the deity. And I know that we can't stay in that, uh, in that realm all day long. You can't stay in that heady space where you go around investigating, uh, thinking about your clothes or about blankets or uh, even about the language you use. We can't stay there all day, but we can take a little bit of time to do that, I think. And I think that's what poetry does. I think that's what uh, a, a daily round of prayer or reading from whatever holy book you like to read from does. I think that's what a good ritual does. And I even think lately that that is what all the crazy ritual of family seems to all uh, be about, where you are all woven together in these habits, in these schedules, in these uh, these strict uh, measurements of time that you cannot deviate from and you shouldn't be late for, and that all repeat themselves every day, every week, every year, until uh, the person you've been raising is able to do it on their own. Um, I realized, actually, lately that uh, if you look at the long poem that I published almost 10 years ago called To the House of the Sun, uh, the protagonist of that uh, book is a man named Conrad who is a wandering uh, Civil War-torn America from the south to the north and to the west. 
uh, he is mourning the death of his wife. So he's by himself the entire poem, basically. Uh, it is basically uh, an ascetic epic. It is the epic of a hermit, someone who uh, comes in contact with a great deal of people but does not stay with them, does not journey with them. And the funny thing that I realized being on vacation last week at the beach is that you have the great year, uh, you have uh, Smith, the main character, but then everybody else is a main character as well, a woman named Breuria, and uh, two children, one of them uh, named Isabel, the other one named Dylan, and there's also the, uh, the severed, preserved, uh, prophetic head that they carry around in a bag who, uh, who speaks some good poetry every now and then. And um, they are the main characters. Their family is the main thrust of this story. And I realize that that too is a bit of wishful thinking on my own part, because how does this family in the great year on their wanderings at the end of the world, uh, how do they communicate? They communicate by telling stories. They communicate by reciting poetry. And isn't that something that uh, deep down, I probably wish we could all spend uh, every waking moment doing. Uh, but I understand that's not the case. Um, but I can at least devote an hour a week or so on this podcast to things like that, things that uh, have informed my mind and that give me some kind of focus during the day and perhaps can do the same for you. So let's find the next little piece that I was going to read from right now. Now, before I get to the next book, I thought it worth uh, reading one little stanza from The Great Year in connection with looms and weaving and such. Uh, when we first meet the severed head that I mentioned, the severed head that speaks and prophesies and uh, speaks poetry, um, one of the things he says is this. He says, I have seen the great loom set up in the crowded room and I saw the loom get going. And the weights on that loom that were in the great room were the heads of women and men, and mine was among them. There are only visions, endless disturbance and revelation, and I cannot flee. Why do I need a body? And that's just an indication that's from book one of the great year of how long this idea of these looms and the creativity and the uh, just the long history of what looms and and weaving and all of this uh, get down to uh, how long that has been with me and that is perhaps why that passage that I just read to you does mean so much to me but since the book itself since the journey uh, is basically overland if you take Eastern Europe and then up along the uh, coast of the Baltic and then the North Sea down to uh, perhaps the coast of Normandy, uh, when they do finally, when my, my pilgrims, you might say, do finally get on the water in the North Sea and head for the Orkneys and finally up to Iceland, it's sort of a big deal. 
a story that has been uh, bound by the land suddenly on the water. And isn't there a great just mythology, uh, just a great collection of lore that has to do with the sea, that has to do with the ocean and everything in it. And so the, the passage that I'm going to read now is from an incredible book by Michael Pye. That last name, by the way, is P-Y-E. And he wrote an incredible book called The Edge of the World, A Cultural History of the North Sea and the Transformation of Europe. And this is just a passage from the very beginning of the book, and it is about a city, a coastal city in the Netherlands called Domborg. And this will give you a great idea of the kind of, uh, not just uh, mythology, but also archeology span that I hope to be able to build into the great year. And Michael Pye is a great storyteller as well as a great scholar. And the way he spins all of this is quite incredible. He says that uh, high winds tore up the dunes and made the sea wild in the first days of January in the year 1647. The sand was forced out of the way to show something in the subsoil that should have never been there. That was stone. There is no stone at all on the coast near Domborg. There is only sand, peat, clay. So someone must have brought the blocks on the foreshore from far away, from 700 kilometers away in the quarries of northern France, as we now know. And moving it must have been a serious business. One stone alone weighed two tons, and no machine in 1647 could shift it. In an excited letter to Amsterdam, which was sent into print as a newsletter, reported this. About a fortnight ago, some great stones of white limestone appeared on the beach near the sea. You can imagine that being a, a headline on Twitter now uh, about how, uh, how incredible this discovery would have been in January of 1647. Uh, there was also what looked like a little house with the base of columns. There were half-erased images on the stones as well, prayers to a goddess called Nehelenia, thanking her for success, for the welfare of his son, and for the safe passage of goods across the sea. That made it likely that this little house was actually some kind of a temple. The remains of trees, petrified and salted, suggested the kind of grove that was often planted around temples just like these. And the newsletter was sure that what the sea had uncovered was a monument of greatest antiquity. Among the stones were altars to known gods, gods known in 1647, the god Neptune, of course, for the sea and sailors, and of Hercules. But the goddess Nehelenia, with her 26 altars, had been unknown for more than a millennium. And if you happen to get a copy of my book, uh, Bone Antler Stone, my book of uh, archaeology poems, uh, you will find a poem dedicated to Nehelenia there, because since 1647, a great deal has been discovered about her. On the altars, she sits under a shell-shaped canopy, which makes her a goddess of heaven like Venus or Juno or Minerva, or she stands on the prow of a ship 
on an unquiet sea. She sometimes has a throne, and often there is a basket of apples around, and there is always a fine-faced dog gazing up at her, because anyone associated with heaven, like Venus or Juno or Minerva, will also be associated with the dead and the underworld. And there usually seem to be uh, dogs or other animals guarding the entrances to the underworld as well. Uh, ships were not always just a means of transport. They have a curiously deep connection with fertility in people's minds, especially northerners. So it seems that she was the local goddess of good harvests, good luck at sea, and even good connections like carts and roads. She had once been everything to the people around Domborg, and she had been, by 1647, entirely forgotten. There was huge excitement across learned Europe at the time. Something unknown had come out of the sea. Now the past began to come back, and wash away, and come back again, as though history itself were a sea in motion. Peter de Buc, an old man from Domborg, remembered that in 1684, during the very cold winter, when the ice piled up very high on the beach, the immovable stone started to loosen and then shift, and then gradually it moved to the sea. The ball players who had used the stones for years, so the local minister said, had to find somewhere else to play. So that's 40 years later. Uh, the stones are still there, but suddenly they're moving further out to sea. Three years later, in 1687, uh, there was a storm so violent that in the morning there were bodies on the beach, ancient bodies, each in a coffin of wood a couple of centimeters thick. The skulls all faced to the west, and the coffins were full of sand. There were slim, ornate chains around the necks with coins hanging on them. One skeleton had a goblet stacked on its chest, and another had a silver dagger at its side. Christians were not supposed to bury goods with the dead, and so the graves must have been made before the coast started to turn Christian around the year 700, or after Christians had been beaten inland a century and a half later by the Viking raiders. You always have to take the Vikings into account. For a few days, the past was as solid as a coffin, unexplained like a ghost. And then the waters again swept back and hid the dead before anybody could find out who they were or how long ago they were from. Go forward a few decades more, in 1715, a very low tide stretched the land out so far that there, to be seen, were the remains of wells and the foundations of other buildings. One more statue appeared, a great headless victory in the middle of what certainly was a temple of some sort, paved with round and square stones. The Statue of Victory stayed stranded for years until she was carted bodily inland and parked in the local church. She survived, turning green now that she was out of the salt water and in the rains, but she was ruined when lightning brought down the church in 1848. You could write a book just about the life and times of this statue. The remains of this ancient Domborg were reduced to a few damaged pieces and two cubic meters of rubble dumped in the garden of the town clerk. But the dead did not stay away.
The cemetery was uncovered once again in 1749, and then again in 1817. Twenty rough and worm-eaten coffins, held together with wooden pegs, no nails, and locked down in the sand by the sheer weight of the old dunes. There were round brooches on the right shoulder of each body, sometimes on the chest, which looked like money for a sea goddess to buy safety, maybe treasure for a new life. One corpse was buried with a sword, but the locals knew about buried things by now and what they might be worth, and so they went through the coffin secretly, and they wouldn't say exactly what they, what they found there. They were too busy selling it to Amsterdam collectors. The shoreline kept changing with the winds and the tides, and so when the low tide pulled back again in 1832, it opened a quite different site, one that would be seen again and for the last time in 1866, the scattered outlines, this time, of houses and a burial ground with the coffins laid out like a star in the sand. There were now three different stories under the rough water. There was a Roman temple to an unknown goddess, which stood at the point where ships went out into the open sea and looked as though it was abandoned very suddenly. There were the remains of a settlement along the shore, a single road laid out east to west with wooden huts for storing and sorting goods, and enough coins to prove it was a place of serious business, not just of worship, but of business. You might say that the worship brought the business, or that they were both more interconnected than we might want worship to be nowadays. And there were graves that had to be unchristian because they were rich with pretty bronzes decorated with animal masks and a square-cut silver collar. These looked like Viking things. The written record shows only faint traces of all the life that the man in the altars and the grave could suggest. Nobody, nobody mentions Domburg or anything like it in any surviving Roman writings. But then, Romans were deeply provincial at the heart of their empire and quite usually ignored their own rich provinces. That's an amazing thing. It's an important thing to note. Um, if you're going just by the written records, just by what the Romans happened to find interesting and then write down, uh, you would not have any record of any of this. But suddenly, here it is, uh, in the flesh, in the wood, in the precious gold, in the temples, in the statues, in the cemeteries and the houses, um, in the evidence of trade, in the evidence of uh, such a vibrant seagoing culture that you needed a goddess nearby to propitiate to make sure that your seagoing went well. And I think in another book I've read that mentions Nehelenia, um, she was also just someone that people would make pilgrimage to, and you would leave the equivalent of something like a plaster cast of an arm or a leg or whatever it was that you yourself needed healed, and, and you would say your prayers and perhaps leave a coin there as well in the hopes that you would be healed. Um, all of this is bound by archaeology and by a knowledge of geography 
of where the rivers head out to sea, of where old roads can be dug up. And um, it's just wonderful that this is not in any literary records, only from archaeology. And it says that when the scholar Alcune came to write the life of St. Willibord, he told of the saint evangelizing on the island of Wachleren around circa 690 CE in a town where an idol of the old errors still stood. This is the site of Domborg, which was an island before man started reorganizing the coastline. And isn't that something? What we're talking about here is Domborg as a coastal area. Um, but before it was a coastal area, uh, it was itself an island. And in 690, the statue was still there, an idol of the old errors still stood. And it says, Willibrod smashed the statue in front of its guardian, who in a fit of mad anger struck the saint on his head with a sword. But, as Alcune writes, God looked after his servant. Magnanimously, the saint saved the pagan from those who wanted to punish him, and from the demon occupying his soul, because only a demon would do these things. But the man died anyway three days later, as persons who have been seized by angry crowds tend to do. In the annals, the histories that monks kept for their own use, there are also references to a brutal Viking raid in the year 1837 on Domburg, on the island uh, called Wachleren, in which many were killed, many women taken off, and, quote, countless money of various kinds was shipped out, and the Norsemen were left with the power to organize regular payments and tribute. That single hidden street on one great dune was evidently a rich little place, writes Michael Pye, and it was worth pillaging. We also read about raids and struggles, but the ground itself tells a rather different story. When modern archaeologists investigated sites around the beach, they found nothing much to suggest war, nothing burned or smashed or piled up, none of the bloody events that make up the usual kind of history, the events that people tend to record. There were just centuries of life, centuries of life and its slow, sad retreat as the sand blew inland with nothing much of value left behind, except, of course, the dead. All of that vigor got itself buried on a sandy bit of shore where the bathers played and still do play to this day. And the last thing I'll read from this week is just a page or two from the great historian of religions, Mircea Iliade, the Romanian who wrote mostly in French and who taught for many decades at the University of Chicago. There's a great story just in that progression right there. And he has many wonderful books, but for me, uh, the best one is called Patterns in Comparative Religion. It first came out, I believe, in the late 50s, and I'm sure that parts of it are out of date, and um, I'm sure at the time that it was published, people had uh, the usual issues with it that reviewers were able to find. 
but I don't really know of anything else quite like this book in the big field of the history of religions. And um, if someone were to ask me what book to start with, um, maybe something by Joseph Campbell. Uh, but if you really want to get into it, I think Patterns and Comparative Religion would be one to go with. And this is just uh, two passages that he wrote um, in Patterns and Comparative Religion about agriculture. This is a great way to sum everything up that I've been reading uh, in this episode. It says, Agriculture displays the mystery of the rebirth of plant life in a more dramatic manner. In the rights and skills of farming, man is intervening actively. Plant life and the sacred forces of the plant world are no longer something outside him. He takes part by using and fostering them. To the, quote, primitive, agriculture, like all basic activities, all other basic activities, is no merely profane skill because it deals with life, and its object is the marvelous growth of that life dwelling in seed, furrow, rain, and the spirits of vegetation. And so it is therefore first and foremost a ritual. Farming life is first and foremost a ritual. It was so from the beginning and has always remained so in farming communities, even in the most highly civilized areas of Europe, again, quote-unquote civilized, just as, quote, primitive. Uh, earlier, the husbandman enters and becomes part of a sphere of abundant holiness. His actions and labors have solemn consequences because they are performed within a cosmic cycle and because the year, the seasons, summer and winter, seed time and harvest time, build up their own essential forms, each taking on its own autonomous significance. We must first of all note the tremendous importance of time and rhythm, the rhythm of the seasons, in the religious experience of agricultural societies. The husbandman is not only dealing with a sacred sphere as regards to space, the space of the fertile soil, the forces at work in the seed, bud, and flower, but also his work is part of and is governed by a pattern of time, the round of the seasons. Because farming communities are thus bound up with the closed cycles of time, a great many ceremonies are connected with the driving out of the old year and the coming of the new year, the driving out of the ills and the regeneration of the powers. These are always found interwoven with the rites of agriculture. The rhythms of nature come to link them together and increase their efficacy. A somewhat optimistic view of existence gradually results from this long dealing with the soil and its seasons. Death is established as no more than a provisional change in the mode of being. Winter is never final, for it is always followed by a complete regeneration of nature, by a manifestation of new and boundless forms of life. Nothing really dies. Isn't that something to just say about agricultural communities? 
uh, and their outlook that nothing really dies. All is taken up again into primal matter and rests, waiting for another spring. Any vision of the world founded upon rhythm must have certain dramatic moments. To live out in ritual the rhythms of the universe means, above all, to live amid manifold and contradictory tensions. Farm labor is a rite, that is a, a ritual, R-I-T-E, a rite, uh, partly because it is performed upon the body of the earth mother and unleashes the sacred powers of vegetation, but partly also because it involves the farmers being integrated into certain beneficent or harmful periods of time. Because it is an activity involving certain dangers, such as the anger of the spirit who was master of the land before it was cleared, and because it presupposes a series of ceremonies of varying form and origin intended to assist the growth of cereals and hallow the work of the farmer, and finally, because it brings him into a sphere which is, in a sense, also under the jurisdiction of the dead, it would be impossible to list here even the more important groups of beliefs and rights linked with agriculture. This problem has been approached often from Manhart and Fraser to Roncello and J.J. Meyer and Valdemar Lungman. I will be satisfied with giving the most significant rights and beliefs dealing for preference with the areas that have been most methodically studied, such as the Finnish and the Estonian. And there we have it. And uh, you can read the whole chapter to find uh, what Iliade was able to discover. And go to the very end of the chapter, and it says this. Uh, we are used to thinking that the discovery of agriculture made a radical change in the course of human history by ensuring adequate nourishment and thus allowing a tremendous increase in the population. But the discovery of agriculture had decisive results for a quite different reason. It was neither the increase of the population nor the overabundance of food that determined the course of history, but rather it was the theory that man evolved with that discovery. What he himself saw in the grain, what he himself learnt from dealing with it, what he understood from seeing how the seed lost its identity in the earth, it was all this that made up his decisive lesson. Agriculture taught man the fundamental oneness of organic life. And from that revelation sprang the simpler analogies between woman and field, between sexual act and sowing, as well as the most advanced intellectual syntheses, life as rhythmic, death as return, and so on. These syntheses were essential to man's development and were possible only after the discovery of agriculture. One of the most important bases of hope in a redemption is to be found in the prehistoric mystique of agriculture. Like seed hidden in the earth, the dead can hope to return to life in new forms. And yet the pessimistic, even skeptical vision of life also finds its origin in the contemplation of the plant world. And I come back to what I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode. Uh, this isn't uh, 
an excuse, or actually the episode on uh, the fire festivals of medieval Europe and the episode previous to this one. I read all of this stuff uh, not to suggest that we should go back to a primarily agricultural life or that we should look back on it with some sort of uh, rosy tinted glasses and uh, sort of nostalgia uh, about better times or anything like that. Uh, that life is gone in a way that uh, is seems fairly complete. Um, but I look at it in the same way that I look at the opening pages of the book of Genesis. It's very easy to make the mistake that the first chapter of the book of Genesis is a scientific report or that it was ever meant to be taken literally in any way that we mean the word literal now in the year 2023. What the first chapter of Genesis shows me is it's a story of a God, of a, an omnipotent being putting things into order, putting the sky here, putting the water there, bringing the land up out of the water, separating sky, uh, putting uh, the animals of the sky here, animals of the earth here, uh, putting people here, putting plants there, putting mountains there, putting the great whale in the sea, and not by mistake putting it you know, uh, in the middle of a meadow, that kind of thing. Um, it's about organization. And it's a poem, you might say. It's a beautiful poem. The first chapter of Genesis is. Uh, it's a beautiful poem about how to organize things. And so when I read that, I don't uh, think about, well, how long was a day for, for God? Because we have to make it... Uh, fit our idea of what God or time should be. What I think of is, is what are the things, uh, what are the equivalent things in my life that I can possibly hope to organize, uh, to make some sense out of things. And reading something like this out of Iliade, um, while it's true that, that my wife and daughter and I have a garden and we have vegetables growing there, um, we don't depend on any of it for food. Uh, we beautify the yard and we keep things straight and neat. But it's not uh, because we are depending upon our labor to, to eat. Uh, if there was a severe drought or a longer cold, um, the yard might look messy for longer than we want it to be. But we wouldn't starve. And so it's, it's not a, a sense of bringing any of that back. But there is a sense of maybe bringing some of it back in small details. Or again, finding my own equivalents. Uh, what are the rhythms and what are the times and what are the, the stamps of the year that affect my life? Uh, in my case, many of them revolve around the seasonal festivals that Judaism continues to make new and keep modern. And I'm sure there are other ways to do it, too. Some of them just have things to do with the rhythm of writing life, of realizing that there are certain seasons when I am not particularly creative, and there are certain seasons when I am. Um, and that's really a way of just picking up on it that I think can be meaningful. 
Um, we don't need to throw away the agricultural. We don't need to look back at uh, this sort of polytheism of seeing gods everywhere uh, and kind of scoffing at it as if we are better than that idea, because I don't think we are. But we can turn it to our own uses and see what people did in the past as a kind of poem that we can interpret for our own lives if we think it's important enough to do so. And quite literally in my own life, I'm turning all of this material into uh, the poetry that goes into the great year. And that's what I have uh, for this week. And I will do my best to get back to doing these episodes uh, once a week, which is what I was doing for a while up until recently. So thank you as always for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.